came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 2nd of November. 2018. How did it get to November already? Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. For the next five episodes of Astrophys, we'll be publishing recordings of interviews I did on a two and a half thousand kilometre astro tour of Australia's finest eastern state radio and optical observatories. In our last episode, Astrophys 68, we spoke with Dr. Jane Kazmarek, and she told us all about the Parkes Radio Telescope's new ultra-wideband receiver, the UWL, and the fabulous research which that receiver enables. Then, a few hours further up the Newell to Australia's first and only dark sky park, in the Warrumbungal Ranges, named by the traditional owners, the Gamilaroi people. Near Coonabarabran is Siding Spring, where over 50 of our finest optical telescopes sit high on a peak with 360-degree views of the Warrumbungals and the dark, transparent skies above. So in today's episode, part two of our Astro Tour, we speak with Dr Chris Lidman the observatory director who shared a Nobel Prize using the telescopes here to demonstrate the accelerating expansion of the universe. We were also treated to a fabulous tour of this huge facility, including SkyMapper, Huntsman, and the iTelescope net shed with its roll-off roof, and a huge number of remote telescopes there being used by people from all over the world including Dr Ian Musgrave. Included in this tour with Amanda Werrett was an in-depth look at the 3.9-metre AAO telescope with its equatorial mount. Thanks, Amanda. And normally in each episode, we speak with Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave, but that's not possible for this episode. I'll read out an email I just got from him. Dear Brendan, Mum passed away this morning. I'm up in Brisbane, organising things with my brother. I anticipate I will not be able to do anything for at least a week. Mum passed away peacefully in her sleep at the age of 96. Only a few weeks ago, I was celebrating her birthday with her. We had thought she would get her telegram from the Queen. Mum had a long and interesting life with ups and downs. Without her somewhat puzzled encouragement, I would not be where I am today. There's a lot to celebrate in Mum's life and my brother is gathering the clans. 
so I will be less active in the next week or so, unless someone is wrong on the internet. Best wishes, Ian. And our best wishes go to you and our condolences from our audience as well, Ian, and your clans gather successfully and you get through this sad time together. So in Ian's absence, I'll try and give a shortened version of Ian's expert commentary, What's Up Doc, and try and give you an idea of some things to watch out for in the sky over the next week or so. My observational knowledge is basic at best, so I cranked up a free bit of software that Ian introduced me to called Stellarium, but that's later. First, we cross via Coonabarabran to Siding Spring and to the control room of the AAT telescope where I spoke with Chris Lidman. G'day, Chris. Hi, how are you, Brendan? Excellent, thank you. Today we're speaking with Dr Chris Lidman, who is the first director of the ANU Siding Spring Observatory, which is deep in a pristine dark sky site in the Warrumbungal Ranges in northeastern New South Wales in Australia. Chris was a member of the team which shared the 2011 Nobel Prize for Physics and has more than 30,000 citations from 197 research papers and more than 100 other publications. So apart from being a very active researcher, he has responsibility for many of the telescopes based on the site, from the powerful SkyMapper right up to the immense 3.9 metre AAT research telescope, which is where we are right now. And Chris is taking a short break from his latest observing run. So before you tell us about your role as director and all the research going on here, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Chris, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? And did you have dark skies where you live? So I think the most important memory I had growing up as a child was the total solar eclipse in Melbourne in 1976. So that's going back a long way. I was there. Yeah. So I was 11 years old at that time. So that tells you where I'm from. I'm from Melbourne. My parents were living in a place called Wanturna. For those who know Melbourne, that's near Ringwood. For those who don't know Melbourne, that's about 25 kilometres east of the city. Back in those days, it wasn't so residential as it is now. There were a lot of orchards, and so the sky was reasonably dark. Nowadays, of course, it's much, much brighter because there's a lot of uh, residential development around there. Now, I remember that particular event because there was an enormous amount of media attention around the solar eclipse and a little bit of hysteria as well in that you were told, don't go outside, don't look at the sun, which is good advice because it will damage your eyesight. My parents were so scared about this event, they locked us inside the house. And so we couldn't see the event directly. But fortunately, I did put out my head, looked outside, and there was a reflection of the total solar eclipse off my dad's car. So I could watch it from inside the house without my parents knowing. Now, it was actually quite cloudy, and so a lot of the eclipse was hidden, but there were certain times you could see it. So that was a memory which is really stuck in my head. Fantastic. Mine was really spooky. It went 
absolutely still and quiet. And then the birds came out. Yes. And then the sun came out again. It was awesome. Okay, so tell us a bit about your school days then, Chris, and your early ambitions, and did those ambitions change? I think I always wanted to be a pilot. Many people probably want to be a pilot (laughs) in those days. But then as I went through high school and started doing science, I found out that I really enjoyed doing science. And I also bought a small four-inch refracting telescope, which enabled me to see a couple of things later on. Also had a, a Newtonian reflector. So a bit of an amateur astronomer in the backyard, sitting out there at some nights uh, looking at various things. I do remember two particular events which happened later in the 1980s. The first was a Comet Haley. So I remember yep. getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, watching the comet before it went round the sun, because that was when it was at its most spectacular. And then later in 1987, of course, in 1987A, the, the supernova and yep. the uh, Large Magellanic Cloud. Okay, thanks, Chris. And I see your PhD was from ANU, and you were using observations from this very telescope. It must seem like an old friend to you. I'm not going to ask how you've changed, Chris, but can you tell me how this beautiful telescope has changed over the time you've been associated with it? I'll go back even further, perhaps, even to the 1970s. So this yep. is 15 years before I was using the telescope. The telescope was built without computers in mind. Computers were only becoming common as the telescope was being built. And it was built largely for photography. So over that time, since the telescope was built, uh, we've gone from using photographic plates to digital cameras and also from manual mechanical control to computer control. Uh, And those two things have made the telescope much more efficient and effective. Of course, over all that time, the telescope itself, the mirror doesn't change, it's still the same size. But what does change is the technology. So things like digital cameras, the, the spectrographs, the instruments that are involved, they're continually changing and yeah. rejuvenating the telescope. You're part of the successful OSDES program, which is measuring the redshifts for very faint galaxies in which the dark energy survey is finding distant supernova. Now, we've interviewed some of your OSDES team members before, like Dr. Tamara Davis, Dr. Brad Tucker, and PhD candidate uh, Fiona Panther. So our listeners have some good background, but could you remind us what a Type 1A supernova is and why are they called standardizable candles and how your team is measuring that accelerating expansion of the universe. Type 1a supernova is carbon-oxygen white dwarf. A white dwarf is the remnant of stars about the size of our sun or or slightly larger. At the end of their lives, they have a a remnant which is a carbon-oxygen white dwarf. It's about the size of the Earth. It contains about half the mass of the sun. In some cases, these white dwarfs are in binary systems and what can happen is that the binary companion can start feeding material to this white dwarf and over time it grows in size but it can't keep on doing that 
forever. But one particular point, it becomes so massive that thermonuclear ignition occurs in the center of the white dwarf. The white dwarf explodes. It takes about a second. So it's very, very fast. And uh, it's about 1.4 solar masses of material. So you have 1.4 solar masses of material exploding, in, in a sense, like a thermonuclear bomb. And because it's 1.4 solar masses, that means that the amount of material burnt is roughly the same for every single supernova, which means it has a roughly constant brightness. And so that's why it's called a standard candle. Now, it's also called a standardizable candle because they're not perfect standard candles and you need to use some correction factors to make them standard candles. The other property they have is they're very luminous, very bright. So you can see them to the edge of the universe. We use them to measure dark energy because of their constant brightness. The constant brightness means that when we measure their apparent brightness, we measure their distance. So a faintest supernova is going to be further away. So that's one thing we measure. The other thing we measure is the redshift, which you mentioned in your, in your question. The redshift is the amount the universe has expanded. So a redshift of one, the universe was half the size it is today. So you, you get those two things. You get the distance from the, the brightness of the supernova, and this is what's measured in Chile with the dark energy camera through the dark energy survey. And you obtain the redshift of the galaxy which hosted the supernova. And that is done here at the AAT. Combining those two things, distance and redshift, yep. you can infer what the universe is made up of. So this is a, a property of Einstein's theory of general relativity that the energy density in the universe dictates the evolution of the universe. So once you've got those two things, redshift and distance, and you've got that for many supernova over many different redshifts, you can actually work out not only what is in the universe, but what the expansion history of the universe is. And when we do that, we find out that at the current epoch, the universe is not deaccelerating, which is what the result people were expecting back 20 years ago, but is in fact accelerating. And so there has to be something to cause that acceleration. And the, the, the hypothesis is, is this dark energy. Now, we don't know what it is. Uh, we give it a name, but we don't actually know what it is. Some people think uh, that it might be Einstein's cosmological constant, but there are problems with that. And, uh, and the data currently seems to suggest that it is Einstein's cosmological constant. Fantastic. Now... With all those wonderful research telescopes exciting Spring Observatory, you must have astronomers from all over the world wanting to have some time on them. How do you go about allocating research time on these telescopes? That's a very good question. Astronomers need to write a proposal, typically one year in advance. We have a call for proposals that we send out twice a year. Astronomers form teams, then write a proposal to use a telescope uh, for a period of time. And in that proposal, they will then explain what it is they, they want to do. These proposals get reviewed by a scientific committee. 
and they rank the proposals in, in terms of the most interesting, the most scientifically valuable to the least, and then they get uh, allocated time. Usually there's an oversubscription, so there's usually a factor of few uh, more requests than there are, yeah. than there is actual time. Projects vary in size. Some people only ask for a few notes. So, for example, the program that's yeah. going on at the moment, an observer from the United States, only asking for a few nights at time. Other programs are much larger. They might ask for hundreds of nights over yeah. many, many years. Very good. There must be some fabulous research happening here, and we won't obviously have time to go through them all, but before I ask about your observations and the, run, the runs you're currently doing, could you tell us a little about some of the research projects that are happening here at Sodding Spring? Yes, uh, I'll talk uh, about a couple of large programs. Uh, these, are, these are programs which are using many hundreds of nights on the telescope over many, many years. One of these programs is called GALAR, yep. uh, the GALAR survey. And they are essentially trying to understand how the Milky Way is built up. One of the ideas, one of the theories here for Milky Way uh, formation is that it's built of many uh, individual small galaxies. Mm. These galaxies and, and clusters should have roughly similar chemical abundance. And so the idea there here is that uh, it should be possible to fingerprint stars and identify which galaxy it came from. Now, of course, these galaxies have merged with ours and they're completely disrupted and their stars are distributed all throughout the galaxy. But it should be possible by getting their chemical fingerprint to understand uh, which star belongs to which other star and then perhaps rewind the clock to work out how the galaxy was, was built. That's sensational. Let's move on to the way this whole observatory complex works. There have been some recent changes to it. Can you outline those changes and what that means for your researchers here or what it means for you? Yeah, certainly there has been changes. For the researchers, the changes are minimal. What has happened is uh, Australia has uh, entered into a strategic partnership with the European Southern Observatory which is uh, something that Australian astronomers have been wanting for uh, 20 odd years at least. So it's wonderful that we've been able to enter this partnership with the European Southern Observatory because it means it enables us to get access to some wonderful telescopes and instruments in, in Chile. Here, it does mean that the AAT has transferred, the uh, operations has transferred from the Commonwealth sector, from, from the government sector, to the research sector. Yep. So that's the, the big change that's occurred. But in terms of the science that's done here and the instruments that are used, there has been very little, very little change. Fantastic. Now, off topic, have you been over to Chile to look well, at those instruments? Believe it or not, I did work in Chile for 15 years. <laughs> so I'm even more familiar, and it was for the European Southern Observatory. So very good. I'm even more familiar with that side of, of, of the Pacific than I am here. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so you're juggling a lot of issues here. You must have a pretty amazing support team. Yes. Tell us about them. Uh, fantastic. 
The support teams are, are essential for, for operating the telescope. We've got engineers, technicians of all different types, electronics, optical, IT, mechanical. All these skills are needed to, to operate a, a telescope like this. And so the, the staff are, are, are essential. And the staff here are actually one of the reasons why this facility is so well respected uh, elsewhere in the world. I see that in the observing reports. Uh, they're extremely dedicated and will do everything they possibly can to make sure that the, the instrument and telescope is ready when the sun sets. And your ANU students must be very excited to come here. Now, could you tell us what you're doing here tonight, Chris? What's the current observation run about? What are you looking at? What sort of data are you gathering? And what happens to that data? So tonight we have uh, an astronomer from uh, the University of Baltimore who's uh, here for a three-night observing run. He is looking at how galaxies are built up from smaller galaxies. Mm. So similar in a sense to the GLASS survey, but rather than studying our Milky Way galaxy, he's studying galaxies that are similar to the Milky Way galaxy and looking at the galaxies which are orbiting these Milky Way galaxies to understand how these Milky Way analogues are built up over time. So the kind of data he's taking is spectra. So he's breaking white light up into its components, and he's looking at uh, measuring the velocity of these particular galaxies because by looking at the velocity, he can determine whether that galaxy is part of the, the Milky Way analogue or is something in the foreground or something in the background. Yeah. Uh, with the instrument that's being used at the moment, uh, 2DF, he can, do, he can take spectra of around 400 objects at the same time. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons why we have a lot of international visitors come here because this is quite a unique facility, even after 20 years. Yep. And so we have people from all over the world coming, coming to use the facility on, on the telescope. 2DF stands for two-degree field. So that means that uh, the field covered by the instrument uh, on the sky is two degrees across. To give you some perspective what that is, the moon is half a degree across. So this is examining a region of sky, which is two degrees across. And the instrument allows you to select 400 objects at any one time. There's a little robot which positions fibers at, at the location of the objects. Uh, and you can do that for 400 objects at the same time. Yep. So it's a very efficient and effective instrument. Beautiful. So going back now to the accelerating expansion of the universe, are we in for the long, dark chill or the big crunch? What is our current understanding of the ultimate fate of the universe? Well, we can't answer that question, actually. It really depends on what's known as the dark energy equation of state parameter, which is the parameter we're all trying to measure. If that parameter is minus one, then dark energy behaves like a cosmological constant. And in that case, we're in for the big chill. So the universe will continue to accelerate yep. and then the objects will soon become so far apart that the universe becomes cold. Yep. If that number is quite different from minus one, so a lot lower than minus one, 
then there is speculation that we're in for a bit of a more exciting end. And that's sometimes called the, the big rip. Ah, right. uh, so not a big crunch. Yep. Either a, a slow cooling of the universe or a big rip. But this is still to be determined. And there may be surprises. Ah, always. I'm sure there will be. Thanks, Chris. Now, the mic's all yours, and you've got the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, in science funding, in education, in equity, in outreach, our quest for knowledge. The mic's all yours. Oh, that's a big question. I think communication, communication between the science and the public. I think there's a lot of scepticism in the public about the, the scientific method and the reliability of the scientific method. And I see, and that's, that's an area I think that scientists have to work harder on, to explain to the public what we do, how it is we come to the conclusions we make and the, the reliability of, of, those, of those conclusions. I think, yeah, trying to explain the scientific method to the public. One of the things I say to people, scientists don't become famous because they confirm other people's theories. The scientists are not out there to confirm that the other scientist was correct. They become famous by disproving some other's theory. Yeah. That's how you become famous. So the scientific method is is to try and always continually probe for weaknesses and theories where the mistakes are. And I don't think the, the public really appreciates that in the scientific. You know, scientists need to do a better job in, in communicating to the public how, how science is done. Yeah. Is that part of the training you give young astronomers at ANU on not only how to be good observers and good mathematicians and coders, but how to be good communicators yes. as well. It's part yes. of the course. It's, it's part of the, I guess, the apprenticeship yep. of becoming an astronomer yep. is that not only do you need to be able to do research and do it well, but you need to communicate that to your funding agencies and to the general public because ultimately you are supported yep. by the public and the funding agencies. Fantastic. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for coming out of the AAO in the near future? Well, that's always hard to predict. I think with Ausdes, we're just publishing our three-year results, which is based on one-tenth of the survey. No surprises yet, but the constraints we have on something like the dark energy equation estate are as competitive as anything that's been published to date. And so that's with one-tenth of the sample. When we look at the entire sample, a much larger sample, we hope to have much tighter constraints on things like the dark energy equation state. And there may be surprises. Yeah. Uh, no surprises yet. Uh, that's something to look forward to in the next couple of years. And that's a really interesting thing because I've seen happening later is that a lot of data dumps are now going out on the internet and the public can interrogate them. So it's a real sharing of data and there's a potential there for citizen scientists, citizen scientists yes. to get in there. Science is not just for scientists. Science is for everyone. And again, the scientific method is such that you need to continually probe and, and test the data. And so if some person out there a citizen scientist 
uh, uses this data to, to demonstrate a flaw, then that, that, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chris Lidman. On behalf of our listeners, it's been fabulous speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. It's been a pleasure. Now, as you heard earlier, Ian isn't with us for this episode, so in Ian's absence, I'll try to give a shortened version of his expert commentary, What's Up, Doc? And I'll give you an idea of some things to watch out for in the sky over the next couple of weeks. My observational knowledge is basic at best, so I cranked up a free bit of software that Ian introduced me to called Stellarium. Or Stellarium. I made the location Adelaide in South Australia, because that's where Ian lives, and set the time for dusk on Sunday the 4th of November. And at 8.20pm, if you have a low horizon, you'll see Jupiter setting, followed rapidly by Mercury, and it's not often you get to see Mercury. It's moving so fast and so close to the sun, so why not pop out and have a look after sunset? Mercury sets about 9pm, followed by the giant red eye of the scorpion Antares. By 10.30pm, the Milky Way has carried Saturn with it down to set on the western horizon, and if you follow the ecliptic upwards, Mars is still quite high in the west. For astrophotographers who are morning people, who want to capture the very thin crescent moon at 4% illumination around 6am, on Tuesday the 6th of November is the time to do it. This will be a great challenge because the sunrise is only about 20 minutes after moonrise. And remember, if you point your camera at the sun, you will not only blind yourself for life, you'll also wreck your camera's CCD. For normal people who don't get up early, to capture the very thin crescent moon at 3% illumination, you might catch it just after the sun sets around 8pm on Friday the 9th of November. And if you're really clever, you'll get the slither of the moon, Mercury, Jupiter and red Antares all in the one shot. If anyone does that, send your image to me at astrophys on Twitter and I'll rebroadcast it for you. Also, on the 11th of November in the west at about 9pm, the crescent moon and Saturn will be close together. Now, because I'm doing an Ian here, I'll go off on one of his famous astronomical tangents about Mercury. The Bepi Colombo Mercury mission was launched from French Guiana, and this is a joint venture between the European Space Agency the ESA, and the Japanese space agency, JAXA. Pepe Colombo involves not one orbiter, but two. Once the spacecraft has been delivered into orbit around Mercury by the ESA-built Mercury transfer module, it will split into two and release the Mercury magnetospheric orbiter, built by JAXA, and the Mercury planetar orbiter, built by the ESA. It will travel 9 billion kilometres and take seven years to get there. You can't just drop a spacecraft down the gravity well to the sun and go into orbit around Mercury. It's more complex and 
much more elegant than the famous Rich Purnell manoeuvre. The craft was given an initial boost two weeks ago on the Europeans' most powerful rocket, the Ariane. Then it does a series of slingshot flybys to match Mercury's orbital velocity. First, there's one return-to-Earth flyby in 2020, then two Venus flybys in 2020 and 21, then six flybys of Mercury till it finally matches velocity and arrives in orbit in 2025. The heat there is really severe. 450 degrees Celsius on one side and the other side is minus 180 degrees. And it's going from one to the other over a few tens of minutes. And the onboard instruments have to operate around room temperature. So for each orbiter, they have the same problem, but they solve it with different solutions. The Japanese orbiter will spin 15 times a minute to avoid being toasted, like a kebab on a barbecue, while the European orbiter will be wrapped in a special multi-layer blanket and have radiators for protection. This will be a really interesting mission to follow. And now, our news roundup. Our news report is from ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, October 29, 2018. Two outback radio telescopes synchronised to observe the same point of sky have discovered more about one of the universe's most mysterious events in new research published today. The Curtin University-led Murchison Widefield Ray, the MWA, and CSIRO's Australian SKA Pathfinder ASCAP telescopes were searching the sky for fast radio bursts, which are exceptionally bright flashes of energy coming from deep space. These extreme events last only a millisecond, but are so bright that many astronomers initially dismissed the first recorded fast radio bursts as an observational error. In research published, In the Astrophysical Journal Letters, astronomers describe how ASCAP detected several extremely bright FRBs, but the MWA, which scans the sky at lower frequencies, did not see anything, even though it was pointed at the same area of sky at the same time. Lead author Dr. Marcin Sokolowski from ICRA said the fact that the fast radio bursts were not observed at lower frequencies was highly significant. When ASCAP sees these extremely bright events and the MWA doesn't, that tells us something really unexpected is going on. Either fast radio burst sources don't emit at low frequencies, or the signals are blocked on their way to Earth, Dr Sokolowski said. Study co-author Dr. Ramish Bhatt, who is also based at Ikra Curtin, said it required considerable coordination to get the CSIRO-led ASCAP telescope and the Curtin-led MWA telescope pointed at the same area of sky at the same time. Both telescopes were able to capture the same view because the two telescopes are located side by side in the remote desert of Western Australia's 
Murchison region. FRBs are unpredictable, so to catch them when both telescopes are looking in the same direction isn't easy, Dr. Bart said. It took many months of ASCAP and MWA co-tracking the same area of sky, ensuring the best overlap of their views possible, to give us a chance of catching some of these enigmatic bursts. Dr. Jean-Pierre McQuart, who we have interviewed in earlier episodes, was also a co-author of the research, and he said, FRBs have perplexed astronomers ever since the first burst was discovered in 2007. It's really thrilling to have a clue about the origins of these incredible bursts of energy from outside our galaxy, Dr. McQuart said. The MWA adds an important piece of a puzzle, and it was only made possible with this technological tango between the two telescopes. It's an exciting development because it unites the two teams and brings home the advantage of having two telescopes at the same site operating at different frequencies. At this stage, the major effort is on directionality and causation. If we can see exactly where these FRBs are coming from, we can look and try and find out what's happening in that particular area of space. Then we might have some chance of finding out what causes this ongoing mystery. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!